Episode 4, Organized Superstition. Throughout this series, we are met with such impossibilities professed as evidence in history as to totally disregard Bibles as being anything but fables and tradition. These Bibles, having no standing as evidence in claims of land, territory, numbers and population, supposed kings and lineage, but to the contrary, at every inspection we find these testified proofs as being, in total, fictions, fables, and to the true root of intentions, lies by rabbis, priests, bishops, and the like for personal gain, and throughout time, up and into today's era, as a means of creating false posterity in order to gain territory by removing inhabitants from their land and homes. All of these actions based on lies coming from religious books of superstition. Understand this, it is important. These wars and the displacing of people in the area called Palestine is wholly based on a zealot group of religious fanatics using a fable as proof of right to kill, displace, steal from, and oppress a people, with a belief they are chosen to do so through their God, who is to become manifest as a Messiah when a temple gets built. This, in their mangled minds, gives them the right to shed blood and commit atrocities in order to fulfill their false prophecy, and those of the Catholic and Christian support these actions for the same reasons, based wholly on a fictional fairy tale. This, right here, is the support for Zionism, from which many ignorant give themselves to, whether it be just their mind or their body and blood in service to this wickedness. This is mass psychosis, and that embedded psychosis in man is a very old tool used by the state to get its people to carry out commands, never to question the purpose. The people will always be conducted to support and commit atrocities at the behest of the state until they understand what I have been putting out in this series. This series is not just a look at false history. It is not just a study or something for people to casually listen to for entertainment. It is a set of tools to restore the mind of man. Many of the tools that will do this, and they will, are not apparent. They are not in a list to practice or become proficient at. These tools open up paths in the mind by requiring the listener to internalize first, then ponder. You will find with a little bit of time the subject of this material that is, organized superstition, was just a foundation I used to restore the ability for man to think clearly on all matters they might pursue, and by no means, what you will have gained from these episodes, be limited only to organized superstition, but applicable to anything that the mind engages on. Before I get started, I will note that in episode 3, there is a section where I say this pertaining to the supposed Hebrews entering into Egypt. It seems, as we find, that from these seventy souls, presuming thirty-five to be men, becomes a nation of about three million, and are told six hundred thousand were men, which, according to Jewish math again, would mean one hundred children for each male for two generations. This part takes into account for natural death rates over two generations in the time professed. Either way, you will notice that even when taking away death rates, which are a reality, it gives 50 children to each man, which obviously is still another impossibility in these books of superstition. So, what is the construct being created in Palestine today? 
What is the intention we glean after understanding it is all based on fiction? To begin to answer these, the two competing ideas to be understood are that of the Messiah and that of the Angel Messiah. The Jewish superstitions, as they are today, are built around the idea of Messiah, Messiah being a worldly divinity without limits to come after the time when the third temple is built to proclaim the Jews as the chosen and destroy all perceived enemies of the Jews, then to rule over all nations and to rule over all lands of the earth and in heaven. The Christian and Catholic superstitions were built around the idea of angel messiah, this word being synonymous with the word avatar. The difference being is that this particular idea was based on divisions of the seasons, where the Jewish is based on the infinitely adjustable numbers of stars and to a lesser degree the planets, where they can manipulate their prophecies how they see fit to match whatever the whims of man can imagine. This difference just being the Christian Messiah was cyclic and more set in its structure and pretended to rule over divisions of time in a hierarchy of aeons, days, months, and the year, and then to be refreshed, so to speak, at the ends of cycles. The Jewish messianic idea being like clay that can be changed to fit whatever timeline they want, and at any time updated to meet whatever notions they want, an infinitely adjustable number they can use to conduct their silly Kabbalistic magic with. Note here that both of these superstitions started out with the angel messiah ideals. The Jewish only to later changed theirs to a worldly messiah. Recall the word world is a celestial word, not a terrestrial word. Today, both of these are so degenerated from the original ideals they played off of as to be jumbled up together in an incoherent mismatch of both ideals, none of their professors of the word knowing up from down, and so silly in their explanations that it can only be seen as being born from a psychotic mind. I think it's sufficient to not go any further with this, but if you want to learn an in-depth difference of these schools of thought, look at Bunsen's 1880 Angel Messiah book. As I tend to come at topics from imperceptible angles that seem to be out of place, this one is no different, which begs the question again, what is the construct called a Jewish nation being created in the land of Palestine? As we know from the previous episodes, there was never a great Jewish nation in the land of Palestine, but that entire history becomes impossible to reconcile when the supposed evidence coming only from the books of fairy tale is actually inspected. We know to fulfill the prophecy a third temple has to be built, and here, Harken back to episode 3, where we have not any evidence of this supposed King Solomon, son of the supposed King David, even being a king, or even being a person for that matter. This supposed king, who built the supposed first temple in the area this third temple is to be built to bring on the Jews' Messiah. So, right away, we have no evidence that professed area and the testified location of this temple the Jew has any right to. Furthermore, this entire habitat being claimed by the Jew, settled in by kicking out a people who have lived there for centuries, taking their homes, bulldozing their property, has never claimed the extents of its territory. That means, like real countries do, they don't have internationally recognized map lines. This is on purpose, so as to keep expanding the territory. This, by definition, has them as an occupying force, 
and quite literally meeting the definition of an apartheid state. There is no recognizable government without their extents defined. The debates today over this are not done in good faith, as their claims of land itself has no evidence to be valid outside of fable. What's more amazing about this is that men with the highest academic achievements and respect from the 1700s and 1800s before World War II have shown there is absolutely no evidence for any of that territory being a Jewish land, let alone the fact there could not be and was not a great Jewish nation residing in either Egypt nor Palestine in all known history, and the idea of a Jewish nation in that land is wholly modern. Go back to episode 3 to see this. All of this false history leading to endless war supported by Western governments along with their Catholic and Christian populations. This effect isn't limited to Palestine. It is playing out all throughout that region, including Syria. And note, Syria was the cradle of the Christian faith. But that you were never told, were you? The very first New Testament Bibles were written in Syriac and Latin. Though the Latin cannot be confirmed outside of just understanding the fact that no one spoke Greek but just a small portion of the population during Roman rule, along with some smatterings of royalty, and the majority of populations throughout that time in the West were speaking Latin. Why would you write a Bible in Greek? It makes no sense. What does make sense is that for the West, the first was written in Latin, not Greek. But regardless, it is well known that the other prevalent Bible was Syriac, and that area was the de facto cradle from where Christianity was propagated. And to just add some more detail, the rule of the Roman Empire didn't stop with the fall of Rome in the West, as they still ruled in the Asiatic districts all the way up until the 1400s, our era, to the rise of the Ottoman Empire. The fall of Western Rome came from the uncontrolled import of the Abrahamic Orthodoxy out of Asia, that religion having nothing to do with the land, culture, or people of the West, and its professions being wholly incompatible with our lands. That is truly the only allegory for the fall of man. The Church creates it. The Church is the harbinger for the fall. Needless to say, those that profess to understand the history of those lands that would be contrary to the indisputable facts I have put up in this series are not worthy to engage in such talks, and their speculations easily discarded. All the religions and superstitions under Rome, which there were many, lived side by side, went to the same temples, gave their offerings to and prayed to the same god or gods at the same times. They just called them by different names. It wasn't until the orthodoxies from the zealous followers of the Abrahamic superstitions, who happily brought on the Dark Ages, then to revel in them, that man started to separate from his brethren. Now when you hear about Herod's temple, erroneously called the Second Temple, but never hear it called the Jewish Second Temple, you'll be more clear on the subject, as Romans did not segregate religions from the temples in their districts. The temples were built for all under their rule to perform their rituals and worships. Herod's temple, like all other history, was claimed by modern Jews to be theirs, and even as far as saying tablets found at the site proved no foreigners, the Jew trying to say that foreigner meant Gentile, was to visit the temple. 
as if a Roman king would ever dedicate a great pagan temple to the Jew. This is laughable, especially a King Herod. It becomes beyond parody when you look at the excuses given by Jewish academics to why their accounts for a great Jewish nation have never been proven. Just as no Roman governor would march out one that was to be crucified wearing the color of royalty, that being purple, no Roman king would have built the temple just for the Jews. Temples were dedicated to the gods, the pagan gods. They were never dedicated to a single orthodoxy. The names, such as Apollo that might enshrine a temple, was nothing more than the local tongue's name for that temple, but the temple was for the multitude. As I said, they all worshipped the same gods, just with different names, and this dependent on the time of year. Or maybe they were just asking for a blessing on a newborn child under a certain star or planet, that being their child's nativity. The point being, no orthodoxy had claim to a temple. It was a fluid worship, not a rigid, zealous orthodoxy. I took a tangent here, but I plan on showing the history of this in a later series. By now you should understand why I chose the subject of organized superstition as the foundation to help reclaim the minds of man. The Western man not having the wherewithal or the capacity to understand their service to these fictions creating nothing but turmoil, prop up despots and make themselves accomplice to the most heinous atrocities ever perpetrated by man throughout history. I'm going to keep this episode short, as episode 5 is the end of this series, and I expect I will be getting to the culmination from here on out, so I will depart a bit and go into words. I will start with the word epiphany, then give you a breakdown of the word Jerusalem. The manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles, or called the epiphany, was and is a festival celebrated as four consecutive sun's days after the birth of the sun called the first, second, third, and fourth Sundays after the Epiphany. This son's birth, that being called Christmas in the West, being in Egypt and the East was on the 6th of January. In Russia, this date is the 7th of January. This word being epiphanin, epi meaning in Greek, on, upon, above. Phanin means bring to light, cause to appear show by signs beforehand. In a basic sense, this just means to appear as a light above, giving clarity, and is referencing the sun. But understand that when light is spoken of, it does not necessarily default to the sun's light. It can be starlight, moonlight, etc. It depends what subject surrounds it. Fanes, in mythology, being a mystic divinity in the system of the Orphics, 600 years before Christianity, also called Protogonus. Protogonus is protogenus, meaning firstborn or first gene, or genius, said to have sprung from the mystic mundane egg, and to have been the father of all gods and the creator of men. This mythology is traced to the Aryan tradition, that being Persian and Indian cultures. The pertinent passage to tell you what this is all about is found in Ephesians 5.13. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by light, for all that is made manifest is light. The Greek rendition of this word epiphany, while in use in the Bible, is ephenerothi, 
I point this out because in its use, another layer is added. That being this word having the sense of emotion coming from beneath or below. The epiphany is just the sun bringing up longer days after passing the winter solstice on the 22nd of December, birthed on the 25th after spending three days and three nights in the lower regions of the winter solstice. And you can see, this is a copy from much older pagan traditions. I would like to point out that when rooting out the English passages back to the Latin and Greek, we invariably find that the construction of the words are directly derived from poetical renderings of ancient Greek plays, their scripts for performances and festivals. There are slight differences in spelling and use in poetry as compared with what's called prose, or just a standard dictation. This fact gives away much to show these Bible fables are forgeries from these ancient scripts used as plays for entertainment, not dictation of historic fact. To know what encompasses this whole epiphany of the Christian Christ, I will read one passage from Orpheus, 600 years before the Christian era. Protogenos, Python, Peramikeos, Eros, Eon. The generic translation of this is Firstborn Phaeton, Son of the Far Shining Morning. With the word Peramikeos, the sense of this has much more meaning, that being a traversing in the peripheral meaning the peripheral day sun, or light. This whole sense of a more technical aspect of measuring the sun's position at a time and space. Concerning the compound word Jerusalem, or Yerushalem, it is just a matter of knowing a bit of morphology through dialects. Shem, Shaman, Shamesh, as rendered in ancient Canaan, Syrian, and Phoenician, a similar word in the Hebrew dialect being Shemaim, meaning skies, heavens, or figuratively, gods, and the same with pre-Islamic Arabic as in Baal Shamin, are terms used for the heavenly vault as pertaining to the course of the luminaries. The contracted compound word Shaman in Latin would be Kailorum, meaning of the heavens, or can be Kailestium, the dwellings of the gods. Either way, the sense is essentially the same. These are the same contracted compounds using the letter C, or one of the sounds of C, as kam, or cham, kamen, or chamen, kamus, or chamus, kam el, or cham el, being an eastern title with a western cognate of chronos, sometimes referred to as Saturn, the Hebraic equivalent being el shaddai. El just being a reference to God, but particularly to the light of a luminary. This El, Al, or Il spans through all of the Arabic dialects, and we find it interposed within words to denote God or the light of God. To make this conversion from Shaman or Kamen, the El, Al, or Il would be interposed and the termination changed. Now this being for the Hebrew, Shalem pronounced Salem in English, being in the Latin Kailorum, meaning of the heavens, or Kailum, or Kailus, the vault of heaven. Depending on its use, the termination changes along with some morphology. there is any part that might make better sense to those who do not bother with language, this next part should be your focus of understanding, as it is more apparent than the former. Note that the confusion in opposing views of etymology in academia, which is a constant, 
is from the false notions that the Shemitic dialects were created in a vacuum. They were not, as the Aryan dialect was the origin taking the barbarous tongue of the uncivilized savage people of Asia to the Shemitic tongue, which retains the barbarous sounds in the hacking-type pronunciation of their particular phonetics of the letters H and G. The same with the languages of the West having their roots coming from the Latin, outside of Germanic, where by far, and to the contrary of some scholars, Latin roots dominate the English language, not Germanic roots. For those that might understand the differences between the pronunciation of Classical Latin and Ecclesiastical Latin, this Aryan to Shemitic will make more sense, and so will the differences between civility and barbarism. The word Salem, or Shalem, pronounced in ancient Greek as Zalem, is not of Shemitic origin, but from the root Sal, that being the Roman Sol, meaning sun, the luminary. The priests of this sun worship were called Sali in Rome. These priests being the performers for planets and heroes, such as Mars and Hercules. All of this meaning the course of the sun, or planets, or stars, in the heavenly vault. And this word Salem, particularly, being the genius of the summer months' luminary sun, or a moving into the summer months from the winter, depending on its use, erroneously applied by the ignorant over time as geographic locations on earth, when it is a celestial word and used variably to denote a time in a space of a season. Note that the summer months span from spring up to the autumnal equinox, where in modern day we think of spring as being separate from summer. Why is this in particular to the summer months' sun? We look at John 3.23. John baptized in Anon near Salim, where the Christian Bible shows the plural termination of im, that being derived from an Arabic dialect, but for this to properly make sense, it needs to be considered a plural genitive. Continuing, because there was much water there, and they came and they were baptized. Anon near Salim is Ain-on, meaning fountain, Salim, meaning of the sun, the fountain of the sun. Anon in the italic for the evangelist is Yon, same as Jonah or Yonah, and Jonas, and John, its more ancient name being Oan or Uan, the Sumerian fishman or fishwoman, as I showed in episode 2. John the Baptist is the literal epithet, the persona, for the fountain of the sun, or the sun's causing a rushing of water. These allegories were interchangeable depending on their use, i.e. the sun bringing rushing water, or the sun bringing fountains of light. The word Salem is Shalem, is Shamales, is Kamales, or Chamales. All of these being the same compound through different dialects and languages, along with those, their particular terminations, vowel changes, and consonant positions. What is a termination? Let's look at the name of Jesus Christ. No name could ever exist in the Latin or Greek, for Jesus has the Latin termination of us, or us, but Christ does not which Christ most definitely, to have agreement with case in Latin, must have the us termination, the us, and this is the same with the Greek. Their terminations, phonetically, must match. This is one of countless errors in the English rendering of the Bible. 
Remove the termination, and we have the root of Jess or Yes, and with a hard C sound of Jack or Yuck, which are the capital letters represented as Yoda, Eta, Sigma, the Catholic and Christians, IHS, falsely called by the unscrupulous priests to mean Jesus Hominum Salvator, meaning Jesus, the Savior of men. This is a purposeful misdirection from the pagan root, as yes is the most ancient name used for God or a God, and again with the Latin termination becomes Jesus or Jesus. This IHS is the Yakus of the Greeks, the God of wine, pronounced with a hard C, and not the soft C from words like Sibyl or Civil or Circular, with Kus being its termination. Terminations or endings generally can go from two letters to four letters, inherently adding one to two syllables to a word which changes its phonetics, that just meaning sound. And this is why some may have a difficult time when they hear me compare two words, then give an explanation from where they were actually derived. These case endings, along with certain infix changes, are particular to the dialect. Now, what do you think the word Solomon, or Sol Ammon, means, as in the Temple of Solomon? It means the temple for or of the Fountain of the Sun. There are other derivations that can be used, but this is enough to show that what you believe or are told of the meanings of your chosen faith is false, and it's done on purpose. This is all allegorical for a point of time, an occurrence happening with the sun through the constellations rendered into fable with human personas. This point of Salem being specific to a meridian time, and likely in reference to the ninth day of each month before the Ides in the Roman calendar, called Nonai, or the Nines, Anon being from Nonai, humorously pronounced backwards to denote time likely specific to midday, noon, or twelve o'clock in this sense, where judicial or other proceedings occurred in a city, or when temples were open, or markets open, not some fantastical act of magic and fantasy. Most take chronos to mean time, but it means equatorial degree, in the original sense, the compass, and cognate with the Latin juros, or the Greek juros. The Greek's word Helios is the eastern nation's El, Al, or Il. The compound word Kam-El or Cham-El in the Hebrew version is Shalem, pronounced in English Salem, which retains the original Latin diphthong sound of I. The only difference between meanings from the original Hercules, where the Hebrew got its Jerusalem by conversion through the Shemitic, is that it was likely to be a plural like Elohim in the original, and also genitive, but that would give up the game to its pagan roots and show the forgery too easily. Regardless, it is what I outlined above. And as a note, Elohim, being plural, has thrown academics for a loop. The Jewish scholar equating it to the sense that it's used in a plural with the same sense, heavens is used in the plural, but understood to be singular. Others have stated it shows it being of pagan origin because Elohim would be rendered as the gods, plural. This explanation is closer, but it takes for granted the Hebrew telling them that Elohim means God, a God of one, 
when it does not. And there's a big lesson here when it comes to relying on the Hebrew scholar for information. Whether they just don't understand their own writings or language, or misrepresent meaning on purpose, invariably one will find in this study that the Jewish scholar cannot be relied on for correct information. This is not a general or hyperbolic statement from me. I've ran across way too many occurrences of fraud, false renderings, and deception coming from the Jewish scholar as to determine their works wholly unreliable. It's akin to the joke today of the FBI investigating the FBI. Let me continue. The Elohim is plural, but not for gods. The Elohim are the deacons, the decanic stars and star groups that rise in succession every ten days in the Decatomori system, explained in brief in episode one. Jerusalem is the same as Latin Eurus Kailus, which is Hercules, and the same as Hieroglyph, also from episode 1. Or if you want, Eurorum Calestium, being the course of the gods, or the dwellings of the gods, that being for the planetary bodies, and in the more recent patriarchal constructions, being the course of the sun in the heavens. It does not mean holy in peace, or teaching of peace, or dwelling of peace, as you are told. That is nonsense. Either these Jewish scholars are not serious professionals, or they have no idea the constructs of their own language, which the latter is by far more plausible, considering the Hebrew language, even though still incomplete today, had no reference material, no writings or academic works showing its constructions, and the form used today was essentially figured out by Western academics who put in the work to give a structure to it. As with everything else, there is no evidence or history that can be relied on for the theory of a great Jewish people, and everything that can be looked at is from the modern era, after the Western nations gave some semblance to this people who call themselves Jews. In closing, these are manipulations not for telling stories of entertainment, but to control the mind and implant figments into the imagination, those now being the conductors of action. The thought comes before the action, just as your mind conducts your foot to step forward. And when the mind is controlled, so are the actions, and from there the outcomes can be predetermined or designed. In short, a population can be conducted once false images, notions, triggers, and the like are embedded into their minds. This is not theory, this is science, and has been and continues to be proven throughout time. Is there not a chemical reaction? known as a sense or emotion in the human being when hearing sound. How about seeing an image or a play or a movie? Does art or architecture not elicit a physical response? And all of these are very basic examples of cause and effect concerning the human condition. This is not a subject I'm prepared to go into at the moment, but it's likely to be a focus down the road. If my Western brethren want to be true to themselves and honor their ancestors, they would be best to start with the ones that came before the corruption of organized superstition, those superstitions in particular being those of the Middle Eastern Abrahamic flavor, known among the West as Catholicism and Christianity. This is not our culture, nor our worship. This was the mark of our enslavement to a corrupted form of governing implemented at the end of a bloody sword. Those who did not convert were punished, killed, their property and land annexed to the church, their children taken, 
where the virgin females were to become the harem of the priests. Their temples demolished all but the very best, which are now called the great cathedrals and churches you see today in Europe. Then to have the pagan cross of the Egyptian Serapis erected on them and within them. This is the history of your beloved church. If one needs to live by a fantasy, a fiction, in order to be a good man, to be a good neighbor, one who can admire creation and its beauty, even worship it, and even create beauty yourself, then that man is as weak as the ancestors who fell victim to this corruption, then to pass it on as a tradition of enslavement to their progeny and kin. Just as today when people say our forefathers are rolling over in their graves, so was the case for the ancestors whose progeny fell victim to the church. For me, I will not take that path, for it is known where it leads, and undeniably by any who have traced history understand the ills of today were and continue to be born out of these organized superstitions. Music by White Bat Audio. Visit him at whitebataudio.com.